0: Good to be with you. My name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. I was gone last week. I missed you dearly. We had some good friends that offered us uh, a week to stay at a place up in Utah, and it was just quiet and quiet and really quiet, and so I loved it. Uh, It was so quiet, I got to do a puzzle, which you have to be in like true relaxation mode to do a puzzle, and so Uh, And then all the stress flooded back in because we got to the end and six pieces were missing from the said puzzle, which now I'm actually just still really angsty about. But anyway, good to be back with everybody. Uh, We are still in the book of John. Last week, Tyler Johnson, uh, lead pastor of all of Redemption Church, was here with us. He's a dear, dear friend of mine, mentor, and we're so thankful that he was able to join us last week. Um, One of the things about Tyler that I want to introduce now is as a way to even frame what we'll be talking about today is uh, about four years ago, during our right before our fifth anniversary, so actually three years ago. Uh, I was sitting down with Tyler, there were some other leaders, and we were just talking about the future of Redemption Church and the future of the church, and one of the things he said stood out to me, and I shared it three years ago at our five-year anniversary, I want to share it again today, and it was simply this, Um, he said, hey, I don't want to do this, and he was talking about church and, and, and kind of the future of Redemption, he goes, I don't want to do this anymore if we're going to do it without God. And and what he meant by that is it's really easy to just do the Christian thing, but leave Jesus out of it. Right? It's easy to come to church. It's easy to kind of go through the rituals and, and kind of just do this religion thing and miss Jesus. And we see this issue rising up already here in this text as well. That what we're going to see in the temple is a lot of practice that seemed to be religious, seemed to be Jewish, but did not have God. And we don't want to do this if we don't have God. There's no point in us gathering. There's no point in us learning. There's no point in us doing good things in the world without Jesus like he is the purpose he is the reason why we gather and why we serve and so I don't want that to be us it's not supposed to be them and so we can learn from this story today what does it mean for the church to fully charge into what this text uh, kind of works out for us but to make sure we do it with the Lord in mind and in our lives. So, if you haven't been with us, we've been in the book of John, the Gospel of John, which, in a nutshell, is a biography of the life of Jesus from Jesus' closest friend confidant, the one with whom he loved, like these guys were tight and we get to see the life of Jesus. Now, what John has been trying to do with the introduction of his gospel, of his biography of the life of Jesus, is try and set him up as the authority over everything. And so in the very beginning, he sets up his authority over all of creation, over all of history. Last week, he's the authority over literally the natural working world that he can move in and miracles and signs and all of these things. Today we see he is also the Lord, the one with authority over all things, worship, praise and religion, that he is the authority that can speak to and form all these things for all people, for all time. Now, if you were paying attention to the scripture reading, you know, you might know this story, but you know at least when you heard it that Jesus gets really mad in this story. And we don't often think of Jesus as really mad. At least our culture doesn't. Oftentimes, Jesus is the flowy beard guy that's really kind and is just about, well, love everybody, man. Like somehow in the process, he became like Jamaican. Jesus is the guy that's just all about love, not about judgment, right? He'd never do that. I remember shortly after I got saved, a store called Urban Outfitters came out with a t-shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy. How many of you had that shirt? Shoot me straight and be honest. Yes, right. There's a few of you. There was one. I refused to get that one because I was too cool. But I did have one that said, Jesus surfs without a board because he walked on water. This is how clever we are in the church. So for all you non-Christians visiting with us today, I know you just can't wait to sign up. So this is the issue, right? It's this, this idea of we have this vision of Jesus, like he's just the love guy. But what we've done is we've taken the culture and, and there's even just our personal definition of what love is, we've placed it on him and said it has to look like this, but we see this real significant anger raised up in Jesus who is God and fleshed. God's anger manifests through Jesus to this really serious situation. So we're going to look at three questions today. The first question is, what makes Jesus so mad? The second one will be, what does Jesus do about it? And three, what should our response be in light of the first two? So turn your Bibles to John chapter two. If you have your Bible on you, please pull out your phone. If you have the app, that counts too. And turn to John chapter two, starting in verse 13. We always appreciate if you bring your scriptures and be able to open those up so you know we're not just making this stuff up. It's actually in there. John 2.13 says this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So the Passover is at hand. If you're unfamiliar with the Passover, think most important religious festival in the, in like the world for the Jews. This is celebrating a moment thousands of years prior in the book of Exodus. We learn of this story where God spares the Israelite people by passing over their homes where he was enacting a plague upon the people that had kept the Israelites in captivity, namely Egypt. And so God passed over their homes. There was sacrificial blood of a sacrificed lamb that was painted upon the doorposts. And so the angel of death would know to pass over that home. And so this was an extraordinary moment of celebration for the Jewish people. They had seven annual festivals. This one was most important. This was the moment where they celebrated what God had done to deliver them from Israel and, sorry, from Egypt and to save them as a people. And so as Jesus goes up, in the same way, we have mass anticipation. Actually, let's do it this way. If you're like a kid, so put yourself in like a six-year-old boy like my boy Finley. His anticipation for Christmas is off the charts, right? Like it's a day of celebration and joy. Why? Because Jesus was born, not the presents, okay? Not any of that stuff. Just be, I'm, just, I'm kidding, he looks forward to that day to the point where when we get to De- December 26, he asks, how many more sleeps till next Christmas? And we count down from 365. There is joy, anticipation, ex- uh, expectation, and celebration for all who are pilgriming or heading to the Passover festival and feast in Jerusalem. So it is with that expectation, celebration, anticipation that then this makes it so difficult what then Jesus finds in verse 14. Now, let me give you some background. The, the, the Jews were spread across the Roman Empire. They weren't just right in Jerusalem proper, but spread across a very vast region that the Roman Empire had taken up. This was called the Jewish diaspora. So they were spread out. And so every year for the Passover festival, they would trek into Jerusalem to celebrate. And when they got there, they would head to the temple, and there were two things that were necessary one would be a sacrifice that they would give at the temple to worship God. The second would be a temple tax that must be paid. And so what's happening here in verse 14 is that what the Jews had established and set up was a marketplace where people would be able to purchase a sacrifice instead of trying to carry a sheep or an oxen across great distances. Now we've all been there. It's really difficult to do that, to bring your sheep to the temple. And so what they do is they provided this marketplace, say, hey, okay, you don't need to bring yours, just buy ours. It's right here for you. It's convenient. It's easy. The second thing that they would do is that then they would have money changers there because in order to pay the temple tax, it cost a half shekel, so they had to take their currency, trade it in for what was called Tyrian coinage, then switch that, join up with someone else, pay the temple tax. And so all of these things were going on. Now, the first major issue of why Jesus is so angry about this is because initially the marketplace was set up on the Mount of Olives, outside the temple, outside the city square, outside the city walls. And so as sojourners, as pilgrims would come in, they would stop at the Mount of Olives, purchase what they needed, exchange their money, go into the temple, worship Yahweh. What they had done, see, is they had taken the marketplace and they moved it into the temple courts. They had moved it into the place that was reserved for worship, that was reserved for God to interact, to meet with man. So that was strike number one for them. Now, There's some debates within the scriptures and within kind of academia uh, whether or not this scene that we're talking about today shows up once or twice in Jesus' life. Because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are called the synoptic gospels, we see this same story show up towards the end of his ministry just prior to his crucifixion. But here John places it at the beginning. So there's some debate. Is this one story or two different times that Jesus runs in and clears the temple? My cards on the table, I think it's one. I think John is intentionally placing it in the front for thematic reasons, intentionally. If you believe it's two, that's fine. This won't change what I'm about to say. Because we can learn more about what was angering Jesus, about what was happening in the temple when the marketplace had been moved in by reading the account from Matthew and adding in verse 13 that says this in Matthew 21, 13. He said to them, Jesus, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So Jesus shows up. He already knows the marketplace should be out here. They've moved it inside. And he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? Jesus is employing two Old Testament Hebrew scripture texts. And he's bringing them into one and combining them to bring an indictment upon what he sees in the temple during this Passover feast. The first one is from Isaiah 56. So feel free to turn there if you'd like. I'll give you a second or on your phone. Isaiah 56, starting in verse 6. Isaiah 56, verse 6 says this. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord So bring it back to when Jesus shows up to the temple and he sees what's going on. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. He's hearkening every Jew that's listening back to the book of Isaiah to say, when we look out here, something's significantly wrong and it's the same indictment pulled from Isaiah 56. Namely, that not only had they moved it inside the temple, they had placed it in the outer courts where the Gentiles would be invited to worship. Gentiles meaning non-Jews, and so there were Gentile, God-fearing non-Jewish people that would come to worship Yahweh, to worship the God of the Israelites, to worship the God of the Bible, and so when they would come in, now when they would walk in, they had no space because it was taken up by the religious elite peddling their stuff when it wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. So Jesus calling out, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. Is saying, you've now limited access to people who are not Jewish. They didn't make the cut for the religious elite. And so they could just be marginalized. They could be oppressed and it could be okay because those in power decided so. This is a massive problem for Jesus who invites all to come and worship Him, who invites all to come and through Him experience God because as we talked about a couple weeks ago, He is the meeting place of God and man. This is a massive issue. The other half of the verse is Jeremiah chapter 7. Feel free to turn there. Jeremiah 7 starting in verse 9, he gets the other half of his indictment. Jeremiah 7:9 says will you steal murder commit adultery swear falsely make offerings to Baal who is a pagan god and go after other gods that you have not known then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So now Jesus, upset they moved it inside, upset they moved it inside to the temple court reserved for the outsider, for the foreigner, for the Gentile, to be able to have access to him, upset about all that, and now, oh, there it goes, and now upset about the corrupt and exploitative practice of what he sees there in that moment. Because there's something happening in the courts that upsets him enough that he would, refer, he would reference Jeremiah 7 calling out the sin and the corruption. Thanks, Anthony. Everyone give uh, Anthony a round of applause. It's looking good. There's something going on, and there's a few things that we learn as we study through what could be happening as you read continually around what's going on in this system. You have the salesman, you have the money changer. So here's what's going on. The salesmen were saying, hey, you know what? The sacrifice you brought, not good enough. What, 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 so, you, so you brought your pigeon, right? You, you brought your sheep, you brought your ox, and you got it somewhere else. You know what? It's not good enough. You need one of these, Your sacrifice isn't good enough. You need one of our sacrifices or it's not going to work. And so then they would be forced to purchase a different sacrifice in order for them to be able to enter the temple and worship God. They were adding things to the worship of God. They were creating an additional barrier to access and worship God and doing so in corrupt and exploitative ways. The other thing that was going on was you had then the money changers who were lobbying and levying rather a tax upon this that went above and beyond what was righteous. And so they were going after these people who had come to worship God and they were adding a corrupt practice to be able to line their own pockets. And so Jesus sees this. He sees the corrupt practice and it causes him to go and get upset. I mean, this sounds like, okay, but we don't go to the temple. We don't have to bring a sacrifice. This idea should sound super familiar to us because it's every bit of marketing you receive every day in your life, no matter what you're watching. For those of you who will go home and watch the New Orleans Saints take on the Green Bay Packers tonight, go Saints, there you go. You're going to see a whole bunch of commercials And all of them are going to say, what you have is not good enough, you need ours instead. This is just marketing 101 from the religious elite to say, what you got isn't good enough, you need what we have. That's going to be better for you. It's adding things. Jesus sees this and then his response is swift and crazy for what we know of Jesus, generally. So what makes him mad? Remember, this is his house. Its intention was to be the place. Everybody give it up for Anthony. We bought an iPad for this very reason to be able to use up here, and then we couldn't find it. So it's just uh, your tithe money going to the right places. Um, we did find it, actually, just like yesterday. Um, Okay, Um, so what's got Jesus so worked up here? Not only are these practices happening, we've already talked about how those aren't good, but they're being done by people in His name. They're being done by people who say that they love God, they are defaming the good name of the God who created the world of the God who saved, and, and, and especially during Passover week, a, a holiday, a festival, where God's name would be so herald for His work. Instead of being seen as Savior, Deliverer, and Good, He's seen as corrupt. Because His people choose to engage in practices that keep people from the table and keep people from the presence of God and exploit people for their gain. Why is Jesus so mad? Because the people committing these issues, these problems, are his people. So they claim. So, when you look... and This is getting real up here. This is getting real. So we're going to be moving inside next week. Uh, Here we go. Thanks, dudes. Everybody give it up for Anthony. <laughs> All right. When you look through the New Testament and you study the rest of the Gospels and you see Jesus' life, it's amazing to see who he gets mad at. Because when he starts talking to sinners... It's generally grace. There's go and sin no more. We love to put that in there. That's true. But there's a whole lot of grace for the sinner. We start looking at the Roman soldiers that crucified Jesus. He looks down upon them. They're killing him. And he says, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Even with Satan during his temptation in the desert, it's just pretty much know your Bible more. But to the religious, to those who would claim his name and then harm others and commit unjust acts to other people, the people that God's created, it's you brood of vipers. It's turning over tables. It's I'm going to whip you. Jesus has a real problem, a real problem when people in his name exploit and hurt his creation. And so what does he do? Moving on to question two. Verse 15, back in John chapter two, if you'd like to turn back, please do. He says this, "'In making a whip of cords, "'he drove them all out of the temple "'with the sheep and the oxen, "'and he poured out the coins of the money changers "'and overturned their tables.'" And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus intervenes with word and action. I'd like us to notice three specific things here. First, his decision to do this was not one that was impetuous. He does not in a moment see this, get angry, and charge in. But it is measured and carefully thought about. How do we know that? Because unless you are someone who does things miraculously, which I guess, okay, well now the argument is shot in its foot. Jesus does that. He didn't do that here. It says that he goes and fashions a whip together. Now my guess is he did not have the materials to make said whip on him. So he probably left the temple court, went to the merchant, purchased what he needed, took the time to fashion a whip, and then ran in. Some years ago, when I was in college, uh, there was a good friend of mine named Allie. I shared this story years ago, so there might be like four of you that remember this. But years ago in college... My friend and I, Allie, we are getting gas at a local gas station in San Diego. We're standing there. We're pumping. A guy comes up and asks if he can have some money for gas. He's trying to get back up to Orange County. Seemed like the nicest guy ever. Like a guy like, there's no way this is a scam. He was wearing a tweed jacket. You never not trust a person with a tweed jacket. Uh, He looked like the Monopoly guy. Like think Monopoly guy in a tweed jacket. Fully trust this guy okay, we'll give you gas to get home. He's like, I just don't have my wallet. Once I get home, I'm good. Here's $15 of gas, friend. So we fill him up. We drive away. We had to make a U-turn, come back down the road to repass the gas station. And here I see the Monopoly guy going to the next person to get more gas. And I think to myself, this is unjust and something needs to be done. And so I say, Allie, go back to the gas station. And so she charges back to the gas station. Before the car is stopped, the door is open, and I'm out screaming. And I'm saying, who do you think you are? Stealing from a 20-year-old woman who's trying to pay for college. I'm pulling out all the stops. Like, she didn't have her father. I'm like, I'm just going to town on this guy. And he's freaked out. I'm not a small person. And I'm walking fast. So he's backing up. And I'm yelling, and I said, I want $15 right now to make right what you just did. He says, I promise you, I do not have any cash on me. I say, okay. I look in his car. He's got stuff in the backseat. I, wa- I said, I want $15 worth of stuff. I can go sell right now to reimburse my friend. He says, okay. Gets in his car. I hear him turn on the ignition. Dude tries to take off. So what do I do? Pray for him? No. I charge that car, and with my boot, because we just got back from a hike, I put the fattest dent in his bumper you could ever imagine, and I walk away feeling really good about myself. And then I think of this story, and I think justified, because, well, Jesus turned over tables, Jesus whips some people. So, surely it's good for me to go around kicking in bumpers of old men who needed money. You see, what we can do with this text is we can easily say, well, because Jesus one time took a whip and fought against injustice this way, we're free to just be jerks. And I was being like, in that scene, it's kind of funny to think about. I feel terrible about it when I really think about it. I don't know what was going on with that guy's life. I don't know why a 60 year old man would need to do that. But I guarantee he didn't get a better picture of God and Jesus and love because of what I did. You see, what we need to understand about Jesus taking his time, going back, fashioning a whip, looking at the scene, charging back in, and then doing what he did, is that this was not motivated by hate or frustration. This was motivated by love. A deep, deep abiding love for what the temple was supposed to be for all people including the people he's driving out because he knows what they're doing is is terrible for them too because it's actually hypocrisy that they too don't even know the God they claim to know. And so he calls them out. His decision was not impetuous. The second one, excuse me, he goes in And he drives out these unjust practices that are happening. Now, um, we too need to do that. We too need to confront unjust practice that is harming our neighbor. Especially when it's harming the outsider, the foreigner, the sojourner, the marginalized. It is the role of the Christian to see where this exists and in love seek to drive out these broken practices especially when they're things that are done by the church especially when they're things that are done inside the church and there are things we're we're not devoid of them we battle them too It doesn't take too, much, too long of a Google search to just go through and look through the exploiting realities of the church in our day. And if we think for a moment, individually, I would never do that. Or corporately, we would never do that. We've already set ourselves up for failure. Because surely we would do that. Why Because we are still flesh. We are not Jesus. And so we desperately need to cling to him and to pursue the things he pursues that we might continually root that out of not just the church, but also the culture around us. The Bible has a continual thread throughout Genesis to Revelation of the people of God being called to caring for the whole world. Israel was never to, call, to care for just Israel. In fact, Israel was blessed, why? To be a blessing. In Jeremiah 29, they are living outside of Babylon, the city and the nation that has put them in captivity, and God visits them through the prophet Jeremiah and tells them to move into Babylon. Why? That they might seek the flourishing and prosperity of Babylon, because in its flourishing, they would find their own. Israel was not meant to just care for Israel. It is to care for Israel, but not just You go all the way back to the book of Genesis, God, when he creates Adam and Eve, he gives them the mandate to care for and have dominion over, in other words, to shepherd and cultivate and to love the world that God has created. This is the narrative from Genesis to Revelation so that in Christ, now the church carries that same mantle of the people of God that we would be a blessing to our neighbors, So where there is injustice inside the church, we really go hard. And guess what? When there's injustice outside the church, we go really hard. And I'm going to be very explicit here. That is not the social gospel. That language has been showing up a ton in recent months. And it's not that I don't get it. There is a gospel that is not the gospel. In fact, there's lots of gospels that are not the gospel. We know that because Jesus and Paul confront it all the time. When we have added things to the gospel. But man, we need to be real careful we're not subtracting things from the gospel. Because the gospel that Jesus preaches is a gospel of the kingdom of God coming, being inaugurated in Jesus and coming continually, coming to bear on the world that we live in through the power of the Spirit in the church. And as that kingdom comes to bear, guess what? It's supposed to look more like the kingdom. So we fight for our neighbors. We advocate where there's injustice. We step in and care and show up and be present. And it's not the social gospel. That language is something that I have no doubt right now. I have no doubt that Satan is using to divide the church not just individual churches, because that's happening, but to divide church against church to say, well, that, that church is a social gospel church. It becomes social gospel if you leave Jesus out of it. And I guarantee you, so many of the churches and so many of the people that are now getting that label, they have not left Jesus out of anything. If anything, they've taken more of Jesus on and said, that means now we need to press into this. This is vitally important. Because if, if, if we're trying to be a church that's faithful to the gospel, we need to be faithful to the one that Jesus preached. When he runs in there and he tells, these people to get out, when he's turning over tables. In what moment did he stop? In that moment, what moment did he stop and preach the four spiritual laws? In what moment did he, in that moment, as he's doing that, did he say, no guys, let's stop doing this, let's just preach the gospel? Just stick to the gospel. Just get people to heaven. That's all that matters. No, it's not. It's just not. Not if we want to live like Jesus. What I think we've done in evangelicalism is somehow we've supplanted the great commandment with the great commission. Because when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the summation of all that it means to follow you? He says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It is the summary of all that we're supposed to be about. I think what we've done is we've taken the Great Commission and put that over the Great Commandment. Instead of being subject to it. And so if that's true, then the great commandment tells us to go and make disciples. So it's always about what? Conversion. It's always about baptism and not about love. When the great commission is subservient to the great commandment, we do go and do those things, but we do it through what? Loving our neighbor first. Now I'm getting passionate about this for all sorts of reasons that would be inappropriate for me to talk about in this moment. But needless to say, I have dear friends pastoring all across the country that are like one more comment short of hanging it up. Because they're advocating for some issue that we think is very biblical. That Jesus advocates for himself right here. But are being told they don't follow Jesus anymore. And that they're not Christians. Or that they don't love the Bible. Or that they're bad pastors or bad people. Or that they're going to hell because they're leading their people astray. Because heaven forbid they would advocate for justice in our world. Now hear me, and and, and this I get it, now I'm just getting passionate, maybe this isn't the best way to talk about this, but please come to me, let's talk about this text and tell me what is Jesus doing in this moment that is not coming up and driving out religious practice that is keeping people from accessing Him and showing them full dignity for who they're supposed to be. Let's, Let's open up the Bible together. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Now, the other thing, the last thing I'll say to this. There's times for this. There are. But let's not just imagine for even a second that this is Jesus' norm. That Jesus just runs out turning tables over everywhere he goes because guess what? Yeah, he's turning over tables of the religious elite and the, and the, stat, or the, the structure and the apparatus that's going on here. But then guess what? Later on, he's going to sit down with Simon the Pharisee who's a perfect picture of this very problem. He's going to have dinner with that dude. And he's going to try and teach that guy and love that guy. He's going to sit down. He's going to have lunch with, uh, with, what's the little dude's name? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. <laughs> Anthony loves Zacchaeus. Nobody give it up for Anthony. Just kidding. Um, Look, one time he goes and turns over tables. Yeah, it's not your norm. So we're not crusaders that go out and say, well, I'm doing this because of John 2. Jesus' norm was meals. That's his norm with how he dealt with people who disagreed. Is it ours? Are the people that we disagree with, and sometimes about very serious issues, is the norm food? Because I think it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be communion. I think it's supposed to be community. I think it's supposed to be relationship and proximity, not stones from a distance. And so, yes, Jesus does this once, and we need to pay attention because there is a time for it. But it's not nearly as frequent as we think, and it should move us closer to people, not farther away. Okay, the last point, and I'm going move, to move a lot quicker. I'm sorry. Notice that he treats the salesmen of the sheep and oxen, not just in the John text, but if you read the Synoptic Gospels, he treats the salesmen of the sheep and the oxen different from the salesmen of the pigeons, which is just really interesting to me. The pigeons were kind of the sacrifice for the poor people, because that's all they could afford. And so for the sheep and the oxen, he's like, get out of here, and runs them out, turns over tables. But then he goes to the salesman of the pigeons and says, like, hey, if you guys could step outside, that'd be great. That continually he's thinking through, how do I care for those who don't have access? How do I care for the outsider? How do I care for the marginalized? How do I care for the poor? As a result, three things happen. One, he restores the court to its purpose. And this is of chief importance to me today. That what Jesus does, when he does this, he restores the court to what it's supposed to be about, the worship and glory of God. That at the center of this is Jesus restoring the temple to its purpose that all could come and worship God because He deserves to be worshipped. He deserves His glory. And anything that defames that or takes that away, Jesus takes very seriously. Two, he restores access and dignity to the Gentile worshipers. Now they can once again come in and worship and experience Yahweh. Three, Jesus' disciples now grow in greater trust of him. Thinking back to a, a scripture in Psalm 69, talking about the zeal of David who is persecuted for his love of God and love of the temple mounts where they could meet with God, he's attacked and now they're likening David to, or Jesus to David as this kind of new David who has taken on this mantle, a love for God being worshipped by his people. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He runs them out, and then he teaches And they ask him, why can you do this? With what authority do you have that you can come in here and do the things you've done and say the things that you've said? And Jesus does not play their game because they want him to maybe do something like he did in Cana. They want him to turn water to wine or they want him to take a stone and turn it into a aardvark or you know something that would just be miraculous. Some sign that you are the one that deserves to be able to tell us what to do. And Jesus is like, I'm not having that. You want to see the sign? The sign is that I just turned over the temple and you weren't paying attention. The sign is that you don't really follow me. But then he throws him a little bone. He says, you want a sign? The sign will be that pretty shortly here, pretty shortly here, you're going to destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, of which they scoff. But he was talking about himself. You want a sign? In a little bit, I'm about to come back from the dead. (laughs) I love that. Like, what a trump card. Like, what argument do you have against that guy in that moment? Show us a sign. Uh, I don't want to. Show us a sign. All right. I'm going to come back to life after you kill me. Okay. Like, it's the ultimate, like, well, I guess we're following you now. Like, if that comes true, and it tells us what in the text, that then the disciples remembered when Jesus said that. Like, it's, Anthony has, he introduced me years ago, this thing called the Jesus juke, okay, where it's just essentially you use Jesus. I really don't know how it works, but essentially you do a thing that just makes the other person look really foolish but you use Jesus it's it's really kind of messed up Jesus in this moment is just the ultimate like you want something you you don't you like more like you don't know what you want but guess what I'm going to do I'm going to transform this whole situation I'm going to make it where this entire, the the whole legalistic, religious, Jewish apparatus will be turned on its head, where everything that's even going on here will seem foolish in light of it. Why? Because now people will worship God in spirit and truth through me, not through sacrifice. Why? Because I will be that sacrifice and I'll be raised in three days. everything, everything we believe and do must be centered on the gospel so that the gospel will point us to all of life being lived for Christ. So at the end of this movement of Christ through the temple, after all that he did there, he does bring them to the cross and to the resurrection. And we should too. And that's the other half of this. I get, like again, I get the argument behind the whole social gospel thing because I also understand that we can be a people that just choose to do good stuff but just leave Jesus to the side. And that's also not okay. He is the best gift you have to give. What happened on the cross 2,000 years ago, what happened three days after that needs to be talked about more. And it needs to be shared by the church more. There's no other way around it. It used to be for a long time, I get it, in our country, like it was like, well, everyone kind of knew it. They just rejected it. I tell you, once you start getting out there, you're talking to Gen Z, some of the younger millennials. I'm getting into conversations with some, and I'll say Jesus, and they barely know who this dude is. Sorry, Sorry, Jesus, for calling you dude. Like, it's just, it's not known. The cross is not known. The resurrection is not known, let alone believed. It's not just okay for us to just do good stuff. We need to do it. That's part of it. That is gospel. But so is telling people about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's got to be both. It's got to be both. So lastly, this should lead us to the end here. What should our response be? Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So the first thing What do we do in response? Number one, like the disciples who remember the resurrection, we too remember the resurrection and we trust the scriptures. What do we need to do? Trust the scriptures. Read the scriptures. Love the scriptures. Be in your Bible. We can't say it enough. We should read this thing because it tells us about Jesus. Not because reading your Bible is the right thing to do or it saves you. It's because the Bible tells you about Jesus who does. So trust the scriptures. And then number two, unlike those who trust signs more than Jesus, we choose to trust Jesus. Because see what happens here? It says that some people saw the signs he was doing, then they finally believed. But Jesus said, I don't believe you. (laughs) Jesus, we believe you. No, you don't. Because you're trusting in the sign. Oh, is everybody okay? Everyone hold on. Look at that. Good job, church. Go help each other. Okay, back here. Come on. Back here. That'll be all right. Hi, Leopolds. Sorry that happened. Um, We trust Jesus over the signs. We don't need the signs. Why? Because Jesus is Jesus. Because we live on the other side of the one sign that he said, this is the one I'll give you. Because we believe in a resurrected king who reigns today. So that has implications for us in the church. So it's because we believe the gospel, because we believe in Jesus Christ, because he is king, because he is savior, we need to examine our hearts continuously to see why we follow. Constantly saying, okay, why why am I doing this? Why am I here? Not in this fear way, but in this desire, I want to know you. Second, we need to repent of our sins and we need to pursue holiness. Jesus cares about the holiness of the temple. We are the temple of Christ, the Bible says, where God resides now. He cares about the holiness of the church, both individually and corporately. We need to repent and seek holiness and righteousness before God. The question needing to be, what needs to be driven out of me by the Lord? that impedes my access to him. What needs to be driven out inside of me, inside of us, that is unjust. What needs to be driven out of me and inside of us that is not holy and, and desperately pursue the Spirit of God to tell us and then do the work of repentance and returning to Jesus through the cross. And then lastly, we need to ask ourselves these two questions. Are there any ways that we as individuals that follow Jesus, either with good intention or malice, keep people from accessing Jesus? Are there any ways we as God's people, the church, either with good intention or malice, keep those people from accessing Jesus? Are there things that we do that don't just inhibit ourselves because God wants us to be holy, wants us to interact with Him, but that we also impact those around us. Are the things we say, are there things we do that are not of Jesus? They're things that have been added on, like what has happened in the temple court in this scene. Things added on to the following of Christ that have now inhibited whole people from missing out and being able to worship God. Now I had like a list of like, literally thirty-one things I wrote down while I was on vacation. It was a depressing vacation in some ways. There were things in my own individual life and things that are in the church and not not redemption per se, but in the church that are like, hey, we we need to repent of these things. I need to repent of these things because they're inhibiting my access to God and others' access to God. And I think that would drive Jesus mad. And I don't know how quickly he would grab the proverbial whip and start driving. I just think, I know he wants to drive it out right now, right away. But I hope we would just find it, see it, and acknowledge it. And obviously we have no time to go through the 31. But I implore you this week to ask yourselves those questions. If anything, and there's got to, you're not Jesus, so there's something. What would Jesus, what would the Holy Spirit seek to drive out of you and drive out of us? that you and others might access God better. That's it. That is the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Help us now as we seek to respond and be faithful to what you've done. Holy Spirit, we need you to move in us because I need you to move in me. I'm just a stubborn person. And Lord, I know uh, more and more, God, that I just don't have everything figured out. And I desperately want, um, I desperately want to know you more. I desperately want those around me to know you. So Lord, I repent of those things that inhibit that. Slow down that process. And God, we ask that you would lead us in the way everlasting. In Christ's name we pray, amen.